First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, as we continue our study of the Minor Prophets today, we've been looking at one of these 12 books every week over the course of these 12 weeks. And today, as you heard a moment ago, we have come to the book of Habakkuk. And so if you have your Bibles today, and I hope that you do, would you turn with me to Habakkuk? And the prophet Habakkuk lived and wrote at about the same time period that Zephaniah did, uh, that we studied last week. He lived uh, towards the end of the 7th century BC, possibly right after the death of King Josiah in 609 BC. It's likely that Josiah's son Jehoiakim was now seated on the throne. Unfortunately, Jehoiakim was not uh, godly as his father was. And he basically immediately set about to start undoing many of the spiritual reforms uh, that his father had put into place. And so as Habakkuk is writing this book, the people of God, the people of Judah uh, were living very wickedly. And uh, God was raising up the Babylonians. They were becoming a world power. Uh, They would very soon displace Assyria as the superpower of the world at that time. And uh, a few years after this, they would invade Judah. They would carry away the people of Judah into captivity. And that happened in 586 BC, just about 20 years or so after the book of Habakkuk uh, was written. What's really interesting, though, about the book of Habakkuk is that really uh, this book does not contain the prophet's public sermons or messages to the people. In fact, he really doesn't address directly the people of Judah at all uh, in this book. And so really the book of Habakkuk is actually more like the book of Jonah. Uh, it's the story of the prophet's own life and the prophet's own Uh, experience. And so as we read the book of Habakkuk, it's really like the prophet is kind of handing us his diary, right? He's handing us his spiritual journal uh, where his prayers are written down. He's kind of inviting us into his own personal relationship with God, allowing us to hear what he said to God and allowing us to hear what God said back to him. And even though Habakkuk prayed these prayers 2,600 years ago, they are still so relevant to what's going on in our world right now and what is going on in our lives right now. Because the things that Habakkuk talked to God about were things like, why is there evil in the world that seems to go on unchecked? They were things like, how come God can be who he says he is in the word of God, and yet things are as they are in this world? He talked to God about, why are my prayers not being answered? He talks about, why can I still have faith and hope and joy, even when the situation and the circumstances of my life are not very good? You know, all of those things are things that we deal with today. Are there things that we'll deal with at some point in our lives. And so God is at the mic today. He wants to speak to us through this book of Habakkuk. And particularly, I believe God wants to talk to us today about how we can trust in him, no matter what is happening in our lives and in this world. And first off, God is saying to us, you can trust me with your questions. You can trust me with your questions. 
You know, what many people know and remember about the book of Habakkuk is that beautiful song of faith that is in the last three verses of the book in chapter three, where Habakkuk talks about how even though the fig tree may not blossom and there be no cattle in the stall, even still will I rejoice and praise the Lord. And we're gonna get there. We're gonna talk about that song before we're through today. But we need to remember that is where the prophet Habakkuk ended. It's not where the prophet began. We need to remember that God actually was working in Habakkuk's heart over the course of these three chapters. And the prophet that we meet in chapter three when this book ends is not the same man that we meet in chapter one when this book began. You know, I pray that's true in our life, that we're not the same person when we come to the end of our life that we were when God found us at the beginning of our life because he's at work in us. In chapter one, we we meet a prophet who is really struggling. Uh, We meet a a prophet, he's a man of God, but he has some real questions on his heart and in his mind about what God is doing, and he's very honest with God about that. In fact, the first two chapters of this book really just contain two questions that Habakkuk asks God and two responses that he gets back from God. The the first question Habakkuk asks is there in verses two through four of chapter one. Look at that with me. He says, "'O Lord,' How long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds." And when you break down what Habakkuk was really complaining to God about, what he was asking God is a question that we sometimes ask God as well. What he was saying to God is, why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you doing anything? Friend, have you ever asked God that? Have you ever had a situation in your life, something that was going on in your life, and you just wanted it to change, you wanted it to end? And you had been praying about it. You'd been talking to God about it. And it just seemed like he wasn't answering you. It seemed like he wasn't doing anything about the situation. Well, that's how Habakkuk felt at this time. And what really was bothering Habakkuk was how ungodly the people of God were behaving. And he felt like God wasn't doing anything to stop them. He uses six different words in verses two and three to describe how wicked the people of God were being. He uses uh, the words violence, and he talks about their injustice, their wrongdoing, their destruction, their strife, their conflict. He's talking about the wrong things they were doing and also how that was affecting and hurting other people, and it bothered Habakkuk. And he was praying about it. He was praying about it a lot, He kept crying out to God and yet didn't seem like God was moving in response to his prayers. That's why he says in verse two, oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? How long, God, will you sit idly by and not do anything about what is taking place? And when I read that, it just reminded me of what I hear from my boys all the time. I'm sure every parent here has heard that from from your uh, kids as well, you know, or maybe, you know, their brother or sister is doing something, you know, wrong to them. In my case, you know, one of my sons will run in and find me and they'll explain all about, you know, what their brother is doing to them. And, and then they'll say something like this. They'll say, dad, aren't you going to do something about that? 
Aren't you going to tell him to stop what he's doing? Well, basically, that's what Habakkuk is doing here, right, with his heavenly father. He's saying, Father, aren't you going to do something about this? I mean, you see how they're behaving. You see the way they're living. You see the way they're hurting people. Aren't you going to stop this? I know you can. Why aren't you stepping in and doing something to make it stop? And, and again, I just wonder if, there's, if there isn't someone here who feels the same way. You've been praying about a situation in your life and asking God to move. And you're saying, God, why won't you make my wife stop what she's doing? My husband stop what they're doing to our family. God, you see what's happening with my child. You see how they're struggling. You see how they're suffering. God, why won't you step in? Why won't you do something to stop it? Maybe it's even things, as we prayed about a moment ago, happening on the world stage, and you're saying, God, you see what Russia is doing to Ukraine. You see how the people are suffering there, God. I see it on TV. Why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you acting? Those are the same kinds of questions that were in Habakkuk's heart. It's what he was struggling about. Of course, what Habakkuk didn't know is that God was already doing something about it. God, as always, was way ahead of Habakkuk. And so in verse 5, God begins to answer the prophet's question. He answers his complaint. And here's what he says in verse 5. Look among the nations and watch Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Now, just to pause there for a moment, you know, that verse is is probably in the top handful of verses in the Bible that is very commonly ripped completely out of its context. Many times I have seen that verse on like missions videos, you know, and you see that verse come up and it's like, you think that God is about to bring a worldwide revival if you just stop at the end of that verse. But this is where context matters when we are studying the Bible. Because when he says, look among the nations and be astonished, he tells us in the very next verse what we're going to be astonished about. This is what it says in verse 6. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. So he's telling his prophet, here's what you're going to be amazed about. Here's what you're not going to believe. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which was another name for the Babylonians, and they're about to come marching in and they're about to come into Judah and they're about to carry you away into captivity. That was what the Lord was about to do. And so the prophet's first question was, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? Well, now God has said, actually, I am already doing something about this. I'm raising up the Babylonians as we speak to address the very thing that you're complaining about, which is the sin of my people. But that wasn't exactly what the prophet Habakkuk was hoping God was going to do. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the question we ask God is, why aren't you doing anything? Other times, the question we have for God is, why are you doing that? You know, now we understand. Habakkuk understood. No, God's not inactive. God is working. God has a plan. But now he's saying, I don't really like that plan. And so starting in verse 12, he starts to complain about God's plan. You know, he was probably hoping God would send a revival or something, right? You know, make everybody turn back to you. Or, or if that's not going to happen, you know, come in and take all the bad people away, but leave the good people like me alone. 
and let us live in our land and let us be at peace. And now he's hearing that's not the plan. That's not what God was going to do. And, and so he's upset about that. And in verse 13, he even kind of starts to question God a little bit about, God, how can you even do that? Because I know your eyes are too pure to look on evil, but have you seen how evil the Babylonians are, God? Have you taken a gander at just how wicked they are and the things that they do to people when they come in and take over other nations? God, I know we're not exactly living for you right now as a nation, but they're even worse than we are. How can you use the Babylonians to invade and discipline a country where we're more righteous than they are? God, it just doesn't seem right. You know, really Habakkuk, was kind of trying to tell God how to run the world, wasn't he? And sometimes I think we do the same thing. We see what God is doing in our lives and in our families, or in our country, in the world. And, and it's not what we want. It's not our plan. It's not how we would have done things. And so, you know, we want to kind of like tell God how to take care of things. And we almost want to inform him. You know, God, like maybe you didn't notice that like this is going on over here. Just wanted to bring it to your attention. And even as we say that, right, I want to inform you, God, about something. We realize how ridiculously silly that is, right, to inform the God of the universe who knows everything, right? God is not lacking for information. We are lacking for information. God is not lacking for wisdom. We are the ones who are lacking for wisdom. And so we really shouldn't question God like Habakkuk does. And yet notice how patient in chapter two God is with Habakkuk. He answers his questions and his complaints and he basically tells him, Habakkuk, yes, you're right. I'm about to use the Babylonians to discipline my people Judah, but don't worry about it. I also know how wicked the Babylonians are and eventually their day of judgment is going to come too. And it did come about 50 years after Judah was taken to captivity. Before we move on, though, you know, there's a couple things that Habakkuk does here in these first two chapters that I do think are such a great example for us, even when we're struggling, how we can still show faith in the Lord. The first thing that he does is that he honestly prays. Honestly prays. He has questions, he has complaints, but he doesn't bury them, he doesn't hide them, he doesn't sweep them under the rug, but he takes them to God. And, and God who was patient with Habakkuk's questions and doubts, God who was patient when John the Baptist, you remember, had some doubts at the end of his life, and yet Jesus was patient with him, he'll be patient with us. But he wants us to be honest with him about what we're feeling and the questions that we have. So we need to be honest when we pray but also we need to humbly wait for God to answer. I love what Habakkuk says in chapter two, verse one. After he's done complaining and kind of questioning, this is what he says. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. I love his heart in that because it's almost like Habakkuk knows that his thinking is not quite right. Do you hear that? He knows that what he's saying is, is really not lining up and, and yet he's just being honest about the way that he feels. But he said, God, I'm gonna climb up in the watchtower and just like the watchman looks out from that tower to see what's coming, I'm gonna look out from my watchtower and I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna wait until you answer me and until you correct me. 
until you change the way I'm thinking and you line up the way I'm thinking with the way that you are thinking. And so much more to say about this, but, but in this regard, the book of Habakkuk really reminds me so much of the book of Job. Because if you've read the book of Job, you know Job had a lot of questions too about a lot of things that had happened in his life and in his family. And basically he spends 40 chapters of that book bringing his questions to God and talking about them and talking about them with his circle of friends. But at the very end of the book of Job, God speaks to him from the whirlwind. He doesn't necessarily answer Job's questions precisely or specifically, but he just shows Job more of his glory and more of his power and more of his sovereignty and who he is. And Job receives that and responds to that. You know, there's great wisdom in recognizing that we may not get a specific answer to every question we have, all those why questions that we have, this side of heaven. But there's wisdom in just sitting before the Lord. As we read in verse 20 of chapter 2, it says this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. There's wisdom in just coming to that place where we say, I I don't know if I'm going to get every answer, but I I will sit here before the Lord and I will recognize that even though my life right now doesn't make a whole lot of sense, the Lord is still in his holy temple. The Lord is still on his throne. He, He doesn't have to tell me everything that he's doing, but I know he's in charge. I know he's on the throne. And sometimes we just need to be still and know that he is God. And that's enough for us. God is saying to us, trust me with your questions. But he's also saying to us, trust me with your very life. After Habakkuk's second question, where he kind of argued with God about using the Babylonians, look at chapter 2, verse 2. This is how the Lord begins to answer him. The Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. In other words, it will not be late. And so what the Lord is about to say to Habakkuk, his answer to Habakkuk's question is so important that God says, Habakkuk, I want you to write this one down. I want you to write down on a tablet, right? Not a, not a Microsoft Surface, probably different kind of tablet. But he says, I want you to write this down, right? I want you to capture this because this is something that's so important that future generations need to read this. They need to hear what I'm answering you because they're going to have the same question in their life. And then he says in verse 3 that basically with every promise of God, it's not going to be early and it's not going to be late. Every promise of God is going to show up right on time. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 4, which is the most important verse in this book. A verse that contains the core message of the book of Habakkuk and really I would say the core message of the entire Bible. Look at it with me. Chapter 2, verse 4. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now the Lord gives us a contrast there between the wicked one and the righteous one. And what he says about the wicked one is that they are proud. They are conceited. And maybe because they are conceited, they are also crooked. 
that their heart is not right. Their heart is bent away from the Lord. And even though it isn't explicit, basically in the context here, he's, he's making it clear that in the end, those who are proud, those that are self-sufficient, who don't humble themselves and admit their need for God, in the end, they will die. But by contrast, the Lord says the just or the righteous one shall live. And how shall they live? They shall live by faith. Church, that is the message of the Bible. The just shall live by faith. And you know, that verse is so important that it is quoted three times, three separate times in the New Testament. Paul quotes this verse in the book of Romans. He quotes it again in the book of Galatians. And then the author of Hebrews also quotes it in Hebrews chapter 10. And this truth is so important. I want us to actually look at all three of those quotations in the New Testament of this verse before we move on. So first off, Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in Romans and it's quoted in Galatians to show us this, to show us that we are saved by faith alone. Here's what Paul said in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then in Galatians 3, verse 11, Paul says this, but that no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. And what is Paul saying in those verses? He's saying that we, it should be evident to us that we're not gonna be righteous. We're not gonna be justified before God because we have kept the law. He says, by keeping the law, no one is justified because we have not kept the law. Right? We've not been able to be good enough. And so Paul is driving that truth home. You're not going to be saved by trying to be good enough. And if we're not going to be saved by being good enough, then how are we saved? We're saved because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Paul explains this in all of his letters, that Jesus Christ has come, that he died on the cross, that he paid for our sins, that he rose on the third day. And when we believe in him, when we have faith in him, not only, listen, not only does he take our sins away, the Bible also says that God in that moment gives us the righteousness of Christ. He gives us the right record of living that Jesus Christ lived and he puts it in our bank account. We didn't live righteously. We didn't live like Jesus. But when we believe in him, God takes away our sin and he gives us his righteousness. The just shall live by faith. Friend, I wonder, have you come to receive that gift of salvation that comes by faith alone. You know, these words, the just shall live by faith, are not only some of the most important words in the Bible, they're also some of the most important words in all of church history. Because in the 16th century, there was a man named Martin Luther, the great reformer, who kicked off the Reformation by nailing his 95 thesis to the church door. And without his work, it's possible that we wouldn't be sitting here right now in this church believing the doctrine that we believe about salvation. And Martin Luther's testimony is that it was while he was studying the book of Romans and while he was wrestling with what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, 
about how the just shall live by faith, that he came to understand my salvation is not because I earn it. My salvation is just by believing in Jesus and then I'm justified. And this is what he wrote. He said, this text was to me the true gate to paradise. Friend, has that truth become the gate to paradise for you? You've come to understand, I can't earn God's salvation, but I receive it by faith alone. We're saved by faith, but also, church, we persevere by faith alone. Not only is faith the entrance way into the Christian life, it's also the way that we keep walking out and living out the Christian life no matter what comes our way. And that's really the meaning that the author of Hebrews gives to this text in Habakkuk when he quotes it. And look at how the author of Hebrews quotes it. Hebrews 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. There it is again. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. You see, faith for the Christian is not just something that shows up at the beginning of our life. It is something that shows up throughout our life. It is a continuing faith. It is an enduring faith. It's a faith that perseveres even through the darkest times of our life. And so, friend, right now, are you living by faith? I don't know what you're facing in your life right now, but are you trusting God in the middle of it? You see, Habakkuk not only tells us that God is saying to us, you can trust me with your questions, that God is saying you can trust me with your very life, but number three, God is saying to us in Habakkuk, you can trust me with your crisis. You can trust me with the hardest things that you have to face in life. And so at the end of this book, after Habakkuk was honest with God about his questions, after he went up in the watchtower and he waited for God to speak to him, and after he received what God had to say, God worked in his heart in such a way that he brought him to a point where he was able to speak these words at, at the end of chapter 3, this beautiful hymn, where he said, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the yield, uh, fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. What beautiful words in scripture these are. In verse 17, Habakkuk describes a situation where everything has been stripped away. He talks about six different kinds of foods that have suddenly become unavailable and as many people have pointed out, this is really in an ascending order of severity, right? He starts out by talking about not having figs. Well, you can probably do without figs. But then he goes on from there. Eventually, he talks about not having any grain in the field to make bread at all. He talks about there being no flocks, there being no herds. What he's describing is no access to food of any kind. And it's hard for us who do not live in an agrarian society to truly understand what he's describing. But what he's describing here is a total catastrophe. You know, again, in, in my life, I have really nothing to compare to that. Right? The only times when I think about in my life where I've seen anything approximating that, uh, sometimes is, you know, <laughs> living in Florida, right, when a hurricane hits, right, then the, some of the, some of the uh, shelves are bare. 
Um, you know, when, uh, of course, COVID began, of course, we could still get food. We just couldn't get toilet paper at that time. But, <laughs> but then, you know, the other time I think about is actually just a month ago. And because of the supply chain uh, issues that we've been having, I remember going to Publix and uh, going into the meat section. I had a list of things for my wife to, to go pick up there. And I went back into the meat section. And I asked them, do you have any whole chickens? And they said, no, we don't have any whole chickens. We don't have any chicken at all. And all the chicken shells, there's nothing on it all, just blank. And then they said, we also don't have any ground beef at all. And, uh, and then the only thing that they had there was pork, you know, the other white meat. So that's what I had to get. <laughs> and I said, you know, man, what's up, Publix, right? Shopping has not been a pleasure today here at Publix, right? <laughs> but, but this is kind of a first world problem, right? That you have to get pork instead of chicken, right? That, that's not what was going on right at this time. That's not the world that they live in. And what he's describing is not having any food at all, also in the middle of an invading army is what he's describing. So as one person put it, this is like Vietnam and Bosnia and Rwanda rolled into one. Or to make it more current for us, this is like what's happening in Ukraine right now. The people who are living in these major cities are having their supplies cut off. And there's an invading army that is in closer to their homes every single day. It's hard to imagine what they're going through. But Habakkuk says, because of what God showed him, that he had learned as he went to the Lord in prayer that he could still rejoice in the Lord. And that's why he says what he does in verse 18, this, this great confession of faith. Even though there's no food at all, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will joy in the God of my salvation. What was his secret? How was he able to say that in a time like that? Well, it's an open secret. Church, it goes back to what was written in chapter two, verse four. The just shall live by faith. He had to learn, I can trust in the Lord no matter what. And, and listen, at this point, this is no longer an academic exercise. When you don't have any food to eat, this is no longer theoretical. You're only able to say this if you actually have a personal relationship with God. If you know him and you know his heart and you know his love for you and you trust his plan for the world and for your life, even though you don't get it and you don't see it. That's why he was able to say in verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. He's the one I'm relying on. He will make my feet like a deer's feet. He will make me walk on the high hills. One person pointed out that as you go through this chapter or this book, it's like God is taking Habakkuk higher and higher. In chapter one, he's down in the valley, isn't he, right? He has some struggles, some things that he's really wrestling with. By the time you come to chapter two, he's standing up in the watchtower and he's waiting for God to speak to him. By the time you come to the end of chapter three, he's walking around on the high hills like a deer. And if you think about it, his circumstances hadn't gotten any better. In fact, they're about to get worse and he knew it. And yet he's higher and higher. Why? Because God was building his faith in him. In church, that's what God wants to do in us. He wants to build our faith in the Lord. He wants to take us higher and higher in our relationship with him. But a lot of times for that to happen, God has to let us go through some things that we would have never chosen for ourselves. You know, in my own life, I've never experienced anything close, as I said, to this total privation of basic necessities that we read about here. But just like all of us, I've had personal crisis in, uh, in my life. Uh, I know those of you who have been a part of our church family for a long time, you already know 
um, this about us, but I know we have many people uh, I haven't shared about it in the last several years, and we have many people here who don't know uh, my wife and I's story and our family story. Uh, but 13 years ago, when our oldest son, uh, Silas, was born, uh, the, the moment after he was uh, delivered, uh, in the delivery room, he started to turn blue. And uh, they rushed him back to uh, the NICU. And, uh, you know, th- those moments for a parent, especially a first-time parent, are uh, scary. Thankfully, they came back in and they told us he was, he was okay, but he had something called Pierre Robin sequence. And what that is, is basically he had a, a jaw that was uh, recessed, had a cleft palate, and a tongue that flopped back over his airway and made it hard uh, for him to breathe. And so they said, we need to transfer him to another hospital. And so that day they transferred Silas, they transferred Megan to a hospital in Chapel Hill, at UNC. Remember driving behind that ambulance that day? They began to educate us on options of things that uh, we could do. And about a week later, he had a surgery, you know, only a week old baby boy, uh, had a a surgery that, uh, again, we had not heard of, but it was called a jaw distraction surgery. And I won't go into all the specifics of that, but basically at the end of that, he had a couple of like screws coming out of his jaw. And every day they gave us a little screwdriver and uh, taught Megan how to use that and how to turn those screws to uh, lengthen his jaw and take it out a little bit every day. And he ended up spending about 35 days or so in the NICU there, um, learning how to breathe, learning how to eat with a special bottle. Megan lived there during that time at the Ronald McDonald house. I was in seminary in the PhD program. I was a youth pastor, so I was driving back and forth from Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Wake Forest. Uh, He ended up needing two surgeries, two more surgeries during that first year of his life. And actually, three of our four sons ended up being born with that same uh, genetic condition. Uh, All of them, except for our youngest son, Zeke, needed those same three surgeries in their first year of life. All of them spent uh, about a month or longer in the NICU when they were born. Here's a couple pictures of when our second son, second oldest son, Micah, was born. And uh, this is a picture of when uh, Silas was meeting him, this next picture, uh, for uh, the very first time there. And just a couple days after that is when Micah would have that surgery on his, his jaw. And, you know, you would think it would get easier the second time that we went through that and then the third time that we went through that, but um, it really, really didn't get easier. And, you know, and and those times in our life, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of fruit on the vine. There wasn't a whole lot of cattle in the stall. And I know you've been there. I know every one of us has a story. If you haven't been there yet, I know at some point in our life, we all face struggles, we all face trials. And, you know, when you get that call that one of your children has died in a car accident, when you get a call that your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, one of your parents has inoperable cancer, when you find out that even though you've wanted a child so badly that for maybe the third time you've miscarried, you know, in moments like that, you know, there really isn't time for a a 10-week Bible study, is there? And moments like that is when we find out if we have that same faith commitment in the Lord that Habakkuk had. It's in times like that we find out, have we already ingrained these truths in our heart and we already have this commitment to the Lord that no matter what happens, even if the circumstances of my life are are terrible right now, I still know that God is good. I still know that he is in his holy temple 
let all the earth be silent before him. And I still trust him, no matter what. I, I pray, church, that God would give us the grace that when those times come, that we'd be able to sing the words that Habakkuk wrote down so long ago. And as we just wrap up here, I want us to just read these words out loud together. Would you do that with me? Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Oh, Father, may it be so. May it be so, Lord, that you work in our heart in such a way that you take us from the valley to the watchtower and even to the high hills where you give us feet, Lord, that will not slip no matter how slippery the road ahead. Father, when those days come, when those trials come, when there's no cattle in the stall for us, Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to remember that we can trust you with our questions. We can trust you in those times of crisis. We can trust you with our very life, with our salvation, with our eternity, because you are in your holy temple. Because you are God, and we are not. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.